0: Lucas Carpenter, Tim Shields, welcome back to Labor Wave Radio.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Y'all have been on the show before, and I feel like every time you come on the show, it's to do these deep dives into some like other article or author in labor history. So that now we're doing that again with William Z. Foster. We had our previous episode with Nick Dreger, where we kind of talked about the broad politics of Foster, you know, a little bit of his biography and his influence over the labor movement Uh, and the contemporary manifestations of like the left labor movement. Today, I think we wanted to talk a little bit more about Foster's impact and influence, like whether he's useful or not as as a guide for organizing. And then also just really dig down into like his thoughts on methods and techniques of organizing. So thanks for having this conversation. I think we should just, since we already had a discussion before where we gave a lot of background on Foster, I think we should just dive right in. So the first question that Tim posed before we record it is why the hell do we bother studying William Z. Foster? Like, is this, is it very valuable? Like what's the utility of Foster's works and writings and his uh, experience in organizing? And I'll just open it up to you all.
2: If for no other reason than um, he's just, he was around for so long uh, and uh, was you know at the head of a America's a socialist led union movement for like thirty years and was a participant in it for the thirty years before that. and numerous people, even today, from uh, Chris Townsend and uh, United Electrical to um Justine Medina and Amazon labor Union, are citing this guy as like a huge influence and somebody that everybody should read,
0: yeah, so his legacy is big. I wonder what you all think about him as being a very reliable narrator of labor (laughs) struggles and like how things really work. Um, I feel like that was like more what motivated your question before Tim. So do you want to address that?
1: Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I, I think a guy spends a lot of time pumping his own tires, you know, that, that he was a pretty obvious careerist. And he was just looking, looking to plug it in, in the right place. And he finally did with the CP. And he he hitched his wagon to the right guy in Stalin. And and that kept kept him going for a long time. You know, Foster, I mean, to his credit, he was enormously prolific. He actually tried to document what it was he was up to and and evidently had the time and the energy to do that. I mean, to me, his his you know, the the problem is that he's a subject to like Sturgeon's Law as anybody else, you know, which is 90% of everything is crap. And I, I think I could assign, you know, I, I think he was subject to that. He was prolific, but he, even even his methodologies, they're pretty prosaic. Other people were doing that stuff. No, they, they weren't honking it and they weren't writing it down. And to his credit, he was writing it down. So I think, you know, if for no other reason, he keeps coming up. Uh, so that's why we have to study him even if it's just as uh, a
2: a bad example or what, what maybe what not to do. (laughs) If nothing else, you can say that um, Foster was on that grind always. Mm -hmm.
0: I do think it's true even, and maybe more true today than even before. I'm not sure, but the longer you stick around in labor circles, the more likely you are to kind of fall upwards, I think in the ranks (laughs) of labor circles. So You know, he stuck around, he grinded it out, and I guess he uh, benefited from that. But I I do think, you know, what you bring up, Tim, about his ideas around technique and organizing and methods, I think that's the more fruitful stuff to really look at, you know, and examine whether or not it's useful for today. So the primary ones that I know of that seem to be the most popular and impactful are uh, his organizing and steel pamphlet. That I know, Lucas, you really dug into in preparation for this conversation. And then you had a pamphlet on, I can't remember the actual title of it, but about striking, about strike strategies. What's the title of that one, Lucas?
2: That's Strike Strategy. So uh, Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry, written in 1936. That's the one that Amazon Labor Union organizers kind of cite. Uh, and then Strike Strategy. Uh, written 10 years before that, uh, written in 1926.
0: Can you give us kind of a brief summary of each so that we can kind of dive more into the details?
2: Before we talk about those pamphlets specifically, I think there's, um, we need to like set sort of a context for Foster's organizing. Uh, Foster, in some ways, just like kind of adapted to whatever like kind of organization he was a part of, or um, he tended to like kind of glom on to whoever he talked to last on like things that he wasn't like wholly devoted to. So like if he hangs out with syndicalists in Europe, he adopts their boring from within syndicalist stuff. If he joins the Communist Party, he, uh, you know, adopts all of the Communist Party line on everything, but The one sort of uh, constant across all of his writing that I've read is that he views union organizing uh, in military terms. Like he thinks that um, there is a militant minority who serves as the general staff of the union and that their job is to analyze everything, hand down orders, and then those orders are followed by the rank and file in a disciplined manner. So he's all about military, military, military. And I think that comes out in both of these pamphlets, organizing methods in the steel industry is like kind of an exposition of what he says he does in his organizing in the steel industry. And it's mostly just like a a rundown of like the structure of the union and its various bodies and what it's doing. And it basically takes the form of just like for each structure, here's the orders that he's giving to the person who's in charge of that. So like the part on slogans uh, is basically just whatever memo he would have handed to the person who is in charge of like uh, slogans or printed stuff or radio, rather than like really drilling down into like, the theory or history or philosophy or whatever of what he's trying to do here. And I honestly, unless like you are somebody who is sitting at the top of like a 50,000 person organizing drive in the steel industry, I actually think that uh, the steel uh, organizing methods in the steel industry pamphlet is like way, way overhyped. I'm not sure how much you could actually take from it. Strike strategy the one that was written 10 years before, is actually kind of useful, uh, in my opinion. Like, obviously, there are like strategic orientations that I disagree with. It still has Foster's military style approach to union organizing. But there is um, a little bit of historicizing, like he will, uh, when he brings up uh, why to do one thing versus another, he will talk about Oh, uh, this guy, uh, like uh, Hawat is a name that he brings up. Remember that because Hawat is also a name in Dune, but uh, he, uh, he talks about various uh, examples of like, okay, here's why you need to do this or that. And here was the result of people who chose to do one thing or another in the actual labor movement. And he doesn't drill down too much into those. But at the very least, uh, it's something that if you're just an independent person, like trying to study the uh, science or art of organizing, I would find it a, a more useful pamphlet if you're trying to practice Foster style unionism.
0: I liked reading the strike strategy pamphlet too, because I thought it had a lot of interesting insights in the Foster's own thinking, but also some really practical guidance. From the onset, Foster says that there's basically three primary types of strikes, ones that are like undeveloped and basically pre-industrial or like from the onset of industrial capitalism. And those are more, they have kind of a embryonic revolutionary potential, but they're confused and disorganized. And I, I can't remember who he cites specifically, but it sounds like he's kind of talking about like early resistance to mechanization and things like that. It's like one form of strike. But then when you have capitalism develop more, You have basically what is the primary mode of striking, which is like reformist strikes or economic strikes primarily. And you know he calls them reformist because they haven't quite gotten to the third, final stage. And the reformist because they're trying to like improve wages and conditions and things like that, but not necessarily topple capitalism. And then the third stage of striking, to my memory, he says, is like the revolutionary mass general strike. You know, you throw overthrow the system and replace it with a new order. And clearly we're not there yet. So that's kind of like, it seems like that colors his ideas about strikes throughout. But he does have a lot of interesting stuff, particularly around like making settlements on striking. I found that one of the more interesting sections of the pamphlet about like, it kind of sounded like if I was talking to somebody today, like a bunch of like lefty, you know, hardcore lefties, like, look, you can't strike forever. You got to figure out like what concessions you're really prioritizing now and uh, come to good terms of settlement, like understand, like settling a strike is like a temporary truce. And these are some of the conditions that we can live with and some of the ones that we can't. And I found those pieces of advice actually really interesting. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts about any of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The one about how to end a strike um, was the most interesting for me, um, because I feel like it's something that the labor movement is generally kind of bad at is that it doesn't really talk about how to handle defeats very well. And I think, you know, foster to his credit here, writing down uh, everything that comes into his head uh, on this stuff uh, does kind of talk about, well, eventually a strike needs to end, whether it's victorious or not. And what are the uh, considerations uh, to make with it? Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't, you know,
1: do a huge deep dive on this one. But what I did pull out of it was it had a lot of Foster's usual sage wisdom, which I refer to now as the the Goldilocks and the three bears is like not too hot, not too cold, just right. Because that's what a lot of his sage wisdom comes down to after a whole lot of words, it will be Yeah, you can't you can't go you can't be a reactionary like the AFL and you can't be uh, a wild eyed revolutionary, like the IWW, be like me right in the middle, be, be Mr. Cool. And uh, that comes up so many times. <laughs> but So every time I would see it it would just glaze me over, like I said, I'm a crank.
0: Well, I mean, I think it's accurate. That is, that is a good summary of like where Foster tends to come down on. It's like right in the middle uh, between like the, Hardcore left and the reactionaries, uh, but still positioning himself as a socialist. Well, in addition to the strike strategy, a lot of what is popular today and discussing Foster comes down to his ideas around uh, like leadership identification. And I believe he calls them like chains and list methods of organizing. I know Jane McAlevey referenced this in her book and has been kind of the subject of rebuttal of other, you know, passionate fosterites saying that she got it all wrong, that she doesn't understand Foster's leadership identification. And so I, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of discuss that a little bit more. So my my general understanding of what Foster talks about, it seems not very different than today, is like like you got to have like a list of workers and you have to like have, you know, leaders in the union, leaders in the rank and file that manage and update those lists as you go. Uh, and that there's like basically influential people in the workplace or like workers that will take on active leadership and they need to be responsible for organizing their chains, like their, their, their networks of workers. I think where the debate comes down is like, how much did Foster say this was like the people that need to be the leaders or the militant minority that already are communist or socialist and have the right consciousness? MacLeavy Levy says organic leaders often are like more like apolitical even, um, and like indifferent to unionism in the first place, because they're like trusted and respected workers. They usually are liked by the boss. Those are the people that need to be in charge of, uh, the rank and file organizing. So correct me where I'm wrong or like, help me elaborate more of the details of what Foster thinks about this stuff.
2: Yeah. This one Foster seemed like a little wishy-washy on because In um, Victor Devinatz's pamphlet on um, Foster's labor philosophy, he kind of talks about how Foster has this uh, trajectory of um, kind of focusing on the militant minority as like people with socialist consciousness. Uh, And then when he starts to get more and more into the AFL, uh, he starts to more and more take the position that. Unionism, like be it reactionary or class struggle, is a revolutionary in itself. That uh, unionism just tends to be uh, revolutionary, and that the more that you do it, the closer you get to revolution, no matter what. And so, I think fosters like definition of what constitutes the military mi- or, excuse me, uh, militant minority kind of shifts uh, from people with more of a class conscious than to just uh, whoever Foster sees as like the most active and disciplined folks. And I think uh, the thing that he believes in either case uh, is that there's a set finite amount uh, and that you basically either are this type of person or you aren't, and it doesn't ever really change
0: and he seems to suggest that like you only need to bother with the people that are already active and interested like don't bother with anybody else cuz the masses like you said will never change they just need to be led i think there's an argument to make that macleavy kind of has the same ideas but just with a different you know flavor and that she also says like look there's these organic leaders they're already there they are the leaders. They're going to be there. They're usually the ones that work longer or have more respect in the workplace, whatever. Those are the folks you focus on and everybody else will never become an organic leader. Like, Let the organic leaders take charge. So it's like, in some ways, I feel like she's almost saying and parroting the same things. She's just not convinced that you have to focus on people that care a lot or are like already politicized or actively supportive of the union. You just have to figure out who's influential in the workplace because of their work ethic. But both of them, I think you can make an argument that both of them seem to believe that leadership is static and that there's not a lot of dynamism amongst the broad working class, that you don't really want to waste your time with people that either aren't really active or don't or aren't already organic leaders in the workplace. And I know, Tim, you had some thoughts about that and how it contrasts with ideas around leadership development as espoused by like Ella Baker and other folks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and there, there's two levels to the leadership thing. I think like there, there, there's the workplace itself. Like who are the leaders in there? Who, who, who is actually building the union? Because contrary to like most of Foster's writing, workers actually build unions. (laughs) It's not the other way around. Unions don't, don't organize them. But, you know, he looked at the, you know, his big critique of the AFL, right? It was not that it was a top-down uh, structure controlled by the people being paid at the top. Uh, his critique of the AFL was that the the leadership was reactionary. And so that if you just got some good communists in there, those would be really good top-down <laughs> driven unions. And I don't think that's that far off of McElhaney in the in the sense of they're they're not that interested in changing that form they think you know like like luke was saying you know and foster thinks that an afl union of now or then is a revolutionary body in some way and i don't buy that (laughs) i just think that that's crazy pants stuff i mean that's like thinking that the democratic party is going to lead fucking class struggle uh it's just not happening yeah, one thing that that I, just because of other stuff I've been doing, I've spent a lot of time studying the SNCC campaign in, in Mississippi.
0: And that's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee.
1: And that was very much their take on leadership is the complete opposite. They are looking for what you would say is organic leaders. But these are already people who have established themselves as leaders in their communities, in their workplaces you know, in their neighborhoods and her their definition of leadership is not that other people respect them. Their definition of leadership is they've shown the ability to stand up for themselves and other people and then developing them to the best of their ability. I mean, that was Ella Baker's famous quote is, you know, strong people don't need strong leaders. Mm-hmm. that they actually believe that the people who are in the fight and most affected by the fight should lead the fight, uh, not the paid staff at the top, <laughs> even though the paid staff at the top are experts or at least credentialed in some way. So it's a very different way of looking at the actual people, that they're not objects to be manipulated up around a chessboard uh, or, or, mil- or soldiers that they're actually fully formed human beings who have agency and that our primary purpose is to help them develop their own agency, not, you know, be our pawns.
0: And to really increase the numbers of them too, to look at a lot of people as having the potential for leadership. I think that the selection of who's like an organic leader and who's a active leader is where a lot of the differences are. Cause yeah, I I mean, I, Really respect Ella Baker. And I remember from my memory of reading about her, it was largely look at every ordinary person as having like potential to become a leader and revolutionary. You just have to put the time and energy into giving them good mentorship. It reminds me of a recent article in uh, Labor Notes that was, I-, I guess it was penned by a couple members of the News Guild about their model that they call Learn It, Do It, Teach It for their union. I really, really like this model. And I I like the the motto: learn it, do it, teach it. But effectively, what they described was like a very member based program of developing leadership and then expanding leadership. Where there exists, like they they don't have like a super staff heavy union, and they don't really have the resources to hire a bunch of staff anyway. So they have to like rely on the rank and file to build the union to grow it. And they're dealing with industries too that are very. Precarious and contingent workers are the norm. So, the existing members take it upon themselves to really learn all the techniques and skills of organizing and like become more fully developed leaders. But then, their primary responsibility through like this interesting internship program, they get paid like a stipend for doing like five hours of work a week for non union shops that they're trying to grow the, uh, their own ranks through. Their responsibility is to like teach these techniques to other workers. And to get them not only to learn them, but capable of teaching them to others. So it's like you learn it, then you do it by teaching, and then you basically train the trainer and get them to teach it to others so that they can keep expanding their base of like leadership. I feel like that's really in the same spirit as like SNCC and Ella Baker. You know, and sometimes I think Foster and even McAlevey too have this kind of, I, the, this comes out every now and then because they do seem to both believe like you need mass organization to win. But I agree with a lot of the criticisms that both Foster and Mac Levy have a very static understanding of leadership development. So I'm just bringing that in the conversation. I don't know, Luke, if you had anything else you want to add.
2: It almost seems like kind of a a particularly American pathology uh, where we, uh, Americans kind of believe in a, um, democratic autocracy where you have an election to like pick uh whoever is going to be in in charge uh, like the president or whatever but once they're in there their like authority is supposed to be absolute so you always need to pick the best person who has always been the best at everything their entire life and i think that uh ideology you know is in america a lot and i think it affected uh, foster uh, in particular definitely pushed it a lot and as far as the learn it do it teach it yeah that uh, whole system uh, looks really cool i kind of want to steal it uh, if i had like extra money lying around i'd want to do like a a union merit badge system where like uh for each of those like items on the learn it do it teach it so there's like uh, chair a meeting or having a one-on-one conversation. There'd be, you know, in people's membership booklet, you get a little stamp for when you learn how to chair a meeting, uh, stamp for when you do it, stamp for when you teach it to somebody. Just a uh, fun little gamified way of like collecting uh, stuff as you do stuff for the union.
0: It's funny that you say that, Luke, because I've basically adopted the same thing <laughs> um, in my own organizing. I haven't gotten yet to the point of like the certificates, but that's my plan. And, uh, you know, wh- one of the really great things about that article, the learn to do it, teach it, is that they include their spreadsheets and like their trackers so that you can copy and like modify it for your own purposes. So I have also similarly done that. I incorporated trainings that are part of the campaigns I'm on and I'm I'm trying to like actively encourage the rank and file, like, hey, fill this out and by the end you'll get some kind of reward or something or some kind of acknowledgement. I haven't figured that out yet, but I, th- I think we're on the same wavelength there.
1: I had one thing on mass organizations that that I think both Foster and McAlevey share, and, and most people share, actually. I, I don't think this is unusual. They need mass organizations to in- instrumentalize their own political programs. As, a, as opposed to mass organizations that make a decision about what it is that they want to do as a as an organization and then to go do it, uh, those are two very different things. And and I think they should. You know, I think that that's a widely shared thing. The other deal, and I'm I'm loving the discussion about at, uh, about the merit badges. That is so cool. But uh, going back to what's the utility of studying Foster? If we would spend as much time studying like popular education and how that works and hasn't worked, you know, really digging into pedagogy of the oppressed, understanding what was going on with popular education throughout the twenties, thirties. I I think that that's a model, you know, it's like what you're trying to do. I know in in your union, Alex, and what the IWW tries to do. And I, I think that that's a much more like you know, and that was you know fundamentally the basis of the SNCC campaign. Was, was we're doing all this on a popular education model, whether in in small groups or mass meetings.
0: I agree too. Like just thinking about the IWW today. you know, I've said this I, on the show before and I've said it plenty in personal correspondence, but for my money, the most valuable thing that the IWW does today is the OT101 they're OT trainings. They have the OT 101 and the OT 102. And I've always thought that they, in at least the U S landscape, maybe there's better trainings out there abroad, but in comparison to like the AFL CIO trainings that exists and, um, you know, SCIU, all the, all the existing mainstream unions, the IWW training is the gold standard. It's just better than all the others. Uh, I felt like that for a while only recently have i gained more insight into the kind of back end of what shapes the training uh which is a very like strong popular education mindset like it's very pedagogically informed the the training itself has all these modules on like different forms of learning and interaction you know some parts of it are like breakout groups some parts of it are like worksheets some parts of it are one to one i didn't realize How much this IWW training was either developed by people that were like teachers or or people that like really believe passionately in like popular education. And I do think that's why it's such an effective tool, because the whole goal of the OT trainings is to uh, skill up and give education to workers so that they're capable of governing their own unions and taking all union matters into their own hands.
2: I do think as far as um, some things that are uh, valuable from Foster is I guess I have a general framework of most of the things that Foster says about like how to structure and run a union internally, I find myself in disagreement with, but how to, how a union relates to external forces, like specifically it's enemies of the boss, the state and the ever uh, uh, un. not untrustworthy, what's the word I'm looking for here, Uh, unreliable public at large. Probably one of my absolute favorite uh, quotes from Strike Strategy goes, uh, quote, uh, right-wing trade union leaders enormously overestimate the value of uh, sympathetic public opinion. Mm -hmm. In order to secure it, they always cut the heart out of their strikes, catering to every petty bourgeois conception Uh, The left wing will make no such mistake while realizing that a favorable public opinion is a valuable asset, and while maneuvering skillfully to create it, the left wing must never forget that the strike can only be won by a successful uh, fighting policy and will not sacrifice the substance of a real fight for the shadow, uh, a favorable public opinion." And like uh, that, I mean, there is literally an article on organizing.work that is like, you do not have to be popular to win. Um, And it, you know, basically has the same thesis there. Uh, And I think it's really something that a lot of unions really need to learn. But so like, if there were nothing else that uh, I would want people to, you know, take away from Foster's writings, uh, at least people who are in the more mainstream union movement, um, I think that is a, perfect, a perfectly serviceable lesson to take away from Foster's strike strategy pamphlet.
0: Yeah, it really hits the nail on the head and is very, very relevant today. I think that insight, because I've seen so many campaigns that like try to pander, they do like what's called like air war strategies. Like they have no ground game. So to try to like substitute for a ground game or even like they don't even pay any attention to the necessity of like shop for organizing they just put up an Instagram or a Twitter account and they just start trying to like berate the boss online thinking that this kind of mythical public sympathetic public is going to come rally behind their cause and like win fights for them. And I, yeah, I guess I'm just echoing. I completely agree. Like (laughs) I, I cannot stand this shit and I don't know why it is so pervasive, but my God, it gets in the way of so much good organizing that could happen um, if we would just start focusing on like, you know, Organizing is really about taking power on the shop floor, and that means that the shop floor has to be the primary arena in which we fight and organize, but not the fucking media. And like, okay, I'm just going to go on a bit of a tangent here. Good Lord, the media is so ass backwards on what they think matters in the labor world. Like, if you're trying to pander to this population, I'm just talking about like the journalist and the press right now. Like, they do not know anything about unions. Um, And what they do try to learn and what they seem to care about the most are these metrics and measurements of union activity that just aren't relevant. I'll I'll give a tangible example. We had a, a campaign I work on. We had a strike recently. It was pretty significant, like a major escalation on the shop floor at a prime location. And my God, the fucking press could give a shit about the fact that workers are actually shutting down production and like really pushing back in powerful ways. But this particular campaign gets reported on all the time. And like, they will like constantly spotlight things that maybe matter, but like when it comes to like, look, this is actually what the campaign is driving that like we're saying, like workers care about the most, this action that's happening is like a prime moment that needs like some coverage the press is like nowhere to be found. So you just can't rely on like on a public support and popular sympathy. It's not coming. Like we're, if it ever would come, we're a far away away from it.
2: It reminds me a lot of the um, misapprehension of the civil rights movement where the potted history is that uh, a bunch of sainted nonviolent uh, black people went to the South and got beat up on camera And it stirred the nation uh, into action when actually they chose they chose a specific strategy of nonviolence. They trained on it. They were disciplined on it. Like if somebody couldn't handle having like smoke blown in their face or like being pushed around, then they didn't get to go on that tour of the South. Like they were being disciplined about this because like uh, Kwame Tur mentioned, like uh, in order for nonviolence to work. Your enemy needs to have a conscience. Uh, And a lot of times your enemy just doesn't view you as a human being. Uh, Like bosses don't view workers as human beings. And a lot of racist people in the South didn't view uh, Black people as human beings. And a lot of racist people in America generally didn't view Black people as people. And the thing that actually, you know, got the civil rights movement, the goals that it was aiming for wasn't sympathy, it was an implicit threat that uh, instability was uh, going to be the wages of non-action on the government's part, Um, and that they mostly acted for the same reason. Uh, They passed, you know, civil rights legislation for the same reason they passed labor law. They were really scared that this was going to get out of hand and turn into a situation that they couldn't control.
0: Absolutely. I want to segue here, maybe a little abruptly, but I know that before we recorded, Luke, you mentioned wanting to kind of discuss the contemporary influence of Foster, mainly on like some of today's fans, some of today's Fosterites, I guess you can call them. You, know, you mentioned Chris Townsend earlier in the ALU. Um, so I just wanted to open it up to you to kind of like bring that into the discussion and and share your thoughts about Foster's influence for today and like maybe even where it can go uh, in really negative directions.
2: Yeah, so in like following labor news and um, learning more about Foster, this was mostly kicked off by Justine Medina, who is a organizer for the Amazon labor Union, talking about how the you know organizing committee sat down and read organizing methods in the steel industry. And in following up more, uh, I've seen that, um, a lot of folks, uh, including like some influential people like Chris Townsend of, uh, United Electrical, and then later, uh, ATU, or I guess both before and after, uh, United Electrical, he was in ATU talking about how important, uh, foster is to read. One of those things is like, I think that, um, focus on leaders, um, has kind of led to both the result and maybe particular strategy that Amazon labor unions, like presence in the media uh, has taken shape. So like, I think it is both a matter of uh, ALU probably pursued this strategy. And uh, because it's the only way that the media, uh, because they have that American leadership ideology, um, they just sort of fit together where um, if you, like, read about Amazon Labor Union, you're more often than not uh, reading about Chris Smalls. If there is a picture of anything related to Amazon Labor Union, uh, it is of Chris Smalls. And I don't think that's, uh, like, entirely a bad thing. Chris Smalls seems, like, a pretty charismatic guy. He does seem to have been, like, on the ground floor of this. It doesn't, like, something that he just, like, hopped on after the fact. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, at the very least, like there does appear to be a concerted effort, like both on the media and ALU's part, uh to be like this guy is um the personification of this thing. Yeah.
0: He earned his merit badge, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, it comes back to like you don't you just can't like rely on popular support for everything because the way that people interpret these social phenomena and union organizing is they they have to like narrow it down to like some charismatic individuals that lead everything. So it can really go into like some, uh, you know, problematic territory, but also you brought up before Luke, that this reliance on leaders and maybe something of a narrowed or static interpretation of, you know, who leaders are and how to develop them. It can have like some really nasty expressions too. Like it can lead to some maybe cultish behavior in organizing and the one uh, technique that you in particular I remember brought up was pink sheeting. So do you, could you talk a little bit more about that and how you see that as like potentially being encouraged by a reading of Foster?
2: Yeah, um, I think the uh, probably what sets the context for this well is, um, I believe this is also in the strike strategy pamphlet. Uh, Foster says, quote, uh, they, uh, this being the union leaders, Uh, must learn how to speed up their organizing campaigns by the adoption of drastic measures of stimulation when this is necessary to catch the busy season or to slow them down in order to avoid the struggle at an inopportune time. Uh, Here's the important part. Often the latter policy demands the greatest courage from the leaders and the greatest sacrifices from the workers who are harassed and victimized by the employer. So essentially what um, Foster is saying here is that, you know, the business cycle has like busy seasons um, when it is like the best time to strike because the boss is trying to have as much production as possible. Uh, But then there are slow seasons when the boss isn't trying to uh, produce as much and the boss might sometimes try to provoke a strike by abusing the workers. Um, And the idea is like the strike would drain the union's funds. And because it doesn't have as much leverage over the boss, it could cause the union to fail. And so Foster is saying that the militant minority organizers need to know how to get a strike going quickly during the busy season and to make sure that strikes don't happen during the slow season. But the result of this is that essentially workers are being held back from standing up for themselves when they are being abused by their bosses so that's what foster is referring to when he says the latter policy demands the greatest courage from the leaders and the greatest sacrifices from the workers and i i think this can lead i don't think it's uniform like i i don't think everybody who is a fan of foster necessarily arrives uh, at the worst conclusion that we're going to talk about in a sec But at the very least, I think it puts it in the list of possibilities of like the avenues that you can go down, because I think it can put you in a situation where there are people who are making decisions abstracted from how it is going to affect the people that uh, actually have to implement those decisions um, by choosing not to stand up for themselves when they are being abused by their boss, which is kind of the whole idea of unionism. And I think like really starts to get to the core of uh, the disagreements that uh, I have with Foster and I think the rest of us do as well. Um, but Alex, you mentioned um, pink sheeting. Um, did you want to describe that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so to the best of my knowledge, I've never actually been taught this practice. It's like, it's it's definitely an extreme in the union world, I think anyway. Um, so I don't think that most people go around teaching how to pink sheet. Um, And it's not popular embraced, but back in um, the days of H-E-R-E or here, one of their organizing techniques that was like culturally embraced internal to the union was what was called pink sheeting. And the basic idea was you would get as much personal and sensitive information as possible about like basically everybody, you know, your leaders, your workers, your electeds, all that. And you would use that information in a way to basically manipulate and coerce people into following selected leaders, you know, like emotionally, like use emotional information and emotional techniques to like get people to uh, support a union organization's chosen leadership and uh, prioritize the need that loyalty is, you know, the standard loyalty is the most important ingredient in any kind of organizing campaign. So the, the premise of pink sheeting was that there's leaders and the leaders need loyalty amongst the masses. Like that's the most important ingredient for success in any kind of campaign is the loyalty of workers to the leadership. And the way that you achieve loyalty to the leadership is through deep and intense and interrogative conversations with workers where you use emotional manipulation And I don't think it's always like so nefariously thought of, but a lot of times it looks like you use emotional manipulation to basically get them to break down into trust and respect and like kind of worship your leadership. So that that's my understanding of pink sheeting. It sounds like real nasty business. I don't think it's ever happened to me, (laughs) but you mentioned that you're reading Daisy Pitkin's book on the line, and she has some um, stories of what pink sheeting looks like from an outside observer. Where like workers will literally be like sat down in the middle of a room and a circle of people around them will be like interrogating them about why they didn't follow through on their task or why they didn't listen to the leadership's instructions and like what's going on with them that makes them not capable of like being committed to the movement and the people in the firing it's like a firing squad basically the people subjected to that would just be emotionally broken down and in tears and by the end of it. It's like it's like a brainwashing technique is what it sounds like. It can really lead to like cult-like behavior. So that, that's my understanding of it. I don't know if you two have any more knowledge about pink sheeting or its origins.
2: Its origins, um, at least for me, are a little mysterious. So I'll preface with, I don't uh, know for a fact that like somebody sat down, read uh, Foster's pamphlet on strike strategy and said, I'm going to do pink sheeting. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not alleging that. Um, but I do think that like sentiments like courage from the leaders and sacrifices from the workers can lead you here is what I'd like to assert. As far as like the details of pink sheeting, one of the things that like Daisy Pitkin's book goes into is that the union unite, uh, which she was a uh, staff organizer for at the time and the union here emerged during the course of the campaign, uh, which is at the center of the book. And uh, here, like, has this uh, pink sheeting thing. And, like, part of the idea around it is that, uh, one, like, you draw out uh, people's um, most sensitive stories uh, in these conversations, both to, like, uh, find the story that makes somebody, like, uh, an inspiring leader to others, and also to have this leverage over people to get them to uh, follow orders because, like, I think it kind of goes back to this like military hierarchy thing where unlike you, like in unions, you can't court martial someone. You can't like have them flogged or shot for not following orders. Um, And I kind of think this takes the place of that disciplinary mechanism where, okay, if you don't follow orders, instead of being court-martialed, you have your pink sheet brought up and then people will gather around you in a circle. And basically bring up all of the deepest darkest secrets that you've told uh to people uh and uh, kind of have that thrown into your face and in some cases accused of you know not caring about these things that you had previously cried over before and it, in the book like it's really nasty business that uh basically you know tears apart friendships um gets people to do things that they um, didn't wanna do, not just because like they were afraid, but because they had moral objections to doing them. And it really spirals out to uh, basically like a bunch of people leaving the merged uh, unite here uh, to form a new and different union. And so I guess that's like one of the reasons why I want to um, study foster, Uh, is to sort of sharpen a critique of um, approaching union organizing uh, the same way that you approach um, military organization. Because I think, like, beyond any moral objections, I, I think there is a pretty clear example that it's bad strategy, that it leads to overconfidence, and it leads to, like, degeneration uh, within your own organization like you both don't get people you you start uh, losing your ability to develop new leaders because like everything is built towards having this static cast of leaders and you start like pushing out uh, anybody who like kind of disagrees with things and I think that that rigidity and degeneration probably has something to do uh, with how Uh, Foster and, like, the rest of the communist cadre who were in the CIO got, like, Order 66 pretty easily because I don't think that they could conceive of the conservative uh, labor bureaucracy outmaneuvering them the way that they did. Um, They were so confident in their own abilities and their own organization and discipline uh, that the idea that they could just so easily be plucked out of all of these immense and powerful organizations just didn't even occur to them.
0: I think that's a really great place to end the conversation. A very good, like an encapsulating point right there of like all of Foster. We've done now two episodes on Foster. I have to admit by this week, I was like, why the fuck did I agree to like read so much Williamsy Foster and like keep talking about this guy? So I think we've excavated the body and we've buried it again, and I'd like to just keep it buried at this point. But appreciate both Tim and Luke for joining the conversation and kind of fleshing out some more details around Foster and sharing your thoughts about him. Folks can support the show by going to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash laborwave radio. And Luke and Tim will have to have you again on sometime to talk about maybe somebody more exciting for all of us. Next time we should do Marty Glaberman if we ever can get the book in print.
2: Demand to uh, Charles H. Kerr get on that reprint of uh, Glaberman's essay uh, collection.